Good evening, good late afternoon. Can you hear us properly? Yes? Good. Well, the Royal Society of Literature is very happy indeed to be holding this event as part of the LSE Space for Thought Festival. Uh, We've held events with them for the last few years, always very happily, and we'd like to offer our particular thanks to Louise Gaskell for helping to make this evening possible. Uh, Some of you in the audience I know are members of the RSL or even fellows of the RSL already, Um, but in case you know nothing about us, can I encourage you to pick up some information as you leave this evening? Um, Membership of the Royal Society of Literature is open to everyone, and what we hope to offer you as members uh, through our events and masterclasses and our magazine is something of the excitement and the stimulation of a book club and a literary festival rolled into one all year round. I won't go into detail about the exciting events we've got coming up for the rest of the spring and summer, uh, because you can pick up information about them at the door. Um, But just for those of you who don't know about our work, I just thought I'd quickly read a few words from our Vice President, Philip Pullman, about what we exist to do. He writes, People need to feel in their bones that the whole of English literature, from Beowulf to Byron to Benjamin Zephaniah, is theirs by right of inheritance. The Royal Society of Literature shows people what belongs to them and welcomes them into it. Now, I'm incredibly excited about this evening's event. Uh, Of all the books I read last year, the ones I love most and that have made the most lasting impression on me were Ali Smith's novel, How to Be Both, and Marion Coots's extraordinary memoir, The Iceberg. Uh, I'm pretty heartless about culling books from my shelves and giving them to friends, but these are two books I really want to keep within my reach for the rest of my life. If you haven't read them, you really do have a treat in store, and if you have, I can tell you uh, that I've been rereading them closely over the past week or so, and that they seem even richer second time round. I'll just quickly introduce our two speakers. Ali Smith was born and grew up in Inverness. Um, She worked at the University of Strathclyde for 18 months until she fell ill with ME and this prompted her to take the plunge and become a full-time writer. Since then, she has published six novels, four collections of short stories and Artful, a collection of buoyant, brilliant essays based on lectures she gave at St Anne's College in Oxford in 2012. Her writing defies any kind of neat categorisation. Every time you find an adjective you think nails her, you realise the opposite is also true. Her writing's playful but profound, modest but effervescent, wise but never jaded, satirical yet incredibly generous, generous, I think, in particular. It has about it a rare quality of grace And grace, as defined by the Scottish poet Edwin Muir, is what breathes warmth into beauty and tenderness into comedy. It is, he writes, in a sense, the crowning gift, for without it, beauty would be cold and comedy heartless. My copy of How to Be Both opens in the 15th century, in the childhood of a fresco painter, Francesco del Cossa, whose life then mysteriously intertwines with that of a 21st century Cambridge teenager, whose mother's recently died. But you could just as easily buy a copy, and it would look exactly the same, Uh, its cover would be exactly the same, it would even have exactly the same ISBN number that opens in the 21st century and moves backwards into the 15th. 
it must have been an absolute nightmare of production to Ali's publishers, and I think it shows just how highly they value her, that they agreed to do this. Marion Coots was born in Nigeria and grew up in Scotland. She works in video, film, sculpture and photography, and her work has been exhibited nationally and internationally, including shows at the Foxhall Gallery in Warsaw, the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, the Wellcome Collection in London. She's held fellowships at Tate Liverpool and Kettles Yard in Cambridge, and she's a lecturer in art at Goldsmiths, Goldsmiths College in London. In 2001, Marion married Tom Lubbock, the art critic for The Independent. And in 2008, while their son was still a toddler, Tom was diagnosed with a brain tumour. It hit the area of his brain that controls speech and language, so that as their son began to learn to speak and to string together sentences, words began to trickle away and then to crash away from Tom. The iceberg is her remarkable, beautiful, and beautiful in every sense. It's the most beautifully produced book I've seen for a very long time, uh, memoir of the two years between Tom's diagnosis and his death. And I urge you, if you've read it or if you haven't read it, to to buy a copy afterwards, but also to buy Tom's own memoir of this time, which is called Until Further Notice, I Am Alive. They're, They're two remarkable books which ought to be read in tandem. In both books, uh, there is what Marion describes as an attempt to come to an intellectual accommodation with death. Uh, There's a moment in Marion's book where somebody comes up to her in the middle of Tom's illness and says to her, you're a strong woman, and she flinches away and crumbles uh, before that description of herself. But it's very difficult to read the iceberg and not to think she is extraordinarily courageous. Um, Just over the weekend, uh, I was reminded in a completely different context of that remark by Thoreau that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I thought of Marion's book, and I thought really that it's equally true that there are a lot of people, Marion Coots and Tom Lubbock amongst them, who are leading, leading lives of quiet heroism. Well, what have these two books in common? In the crudest sense... Uh, it's hard to think of any books published last year that got such uniformly triumphant reviews or that bowled over so many prize judging panels. Uh, How to Be Both has won the Goldsmiths Prize and the Costa Novel Award, and we very much hope it's going to win the Folio Prize when that's announced next month. It was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and we know that but for a casting vote by the head of the judges, it would have won it. The Iceberg was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize, the Costa Biography Award and the Duff Cooper Prize and longlisted for the Guardian First Book Prize. It was multiply chosen by critics as their book of the year. As Diana Athill wrote of it, it's a book that ought to be read by anyone who ever pauses to consider our mortality. Both books tackle loss and sorrow, but also joy. Both reflect on the workings of time Both have a way of looking and then describing that seems to make the scales fall from one's eyes as a reader. Both consider the richness, power and preciousness of words and language. In How to Be Both, there's a moment when Francesco del Cossa says of himself, I am good at the real and the true and the beautiful and can do with some skill the place where all three meet, 
And I think, actually, that's a very apt description of what both Ali and Marion do in these books. That's enough, <clears throat> that's enough from me. Um, let's hear, first of all, how these books came into being. Ali, I think you all started when you saw a picture in a magazine. It, it kind of started uh, slightly before that. Um, I'd been working on a book, on that book that you mentioned called Artful, um, which was a, a series of lectures um, which I gave at a university and then turned into a book. And then I was doing a... a it's, it's about art and where it touches mortality and where it, and, and where it kind of... And actually how it can't not touch mortality. Mm. Um, and um, I was doing a, a podcast with the um, uh, publisher um, and at the end of the podcast uh, I said to him, the thing is, you see, I've had this idea from something that Jose Saramago says, which I quote in Artful, where he says that the worst thing about narrative, the annoying thing about narrative, about written narrative, is that it has to be um, uh, consequential. It has to have consequence. It has to have sequence, which then leads to consequence. You can't have, for instance... Um, three or four things which all happen at once happen at once in a narrative. They have to happen one after the other. There's no escaping from it. And I was, you know, he, this makes Saramago furious. It makes him really angry. He's like, why can't we do like opera singers can? Why can't we like have one voice over another voice over another voice and then we hear, hear the whole drama? Why can't we orchestrate all like that? And I, I had been thinking about this and I'd also been thinking about um, this, again, uh, an aesthetic thought, the structure of fresco. Um, I'd been thinking about how when you see the surface of a fresco, you see the wall and you see the picture, and what you don't see is the original drawing of the fresco, which is usually beneath that picture, which you know, we only find out about if you actually rip the skin off the wall. You have to damage the wall, you have to take the wall apart to find the, the original source of the thing. And I've been thinking about that notion that we look at something in front of our eyes and we take it for granted, that's what it is, and there's something behind it, and we can't see it, yet it's there. So I said to Simon, my, my publisher, what if I was to try and publish a book which is in these two halves, and we split the, the book and we split the print run and we put one half first in one lot, one half first in the next lot. Would that work? And I was thinking at the time I was just mad to even go near that structure. I just thought, this is a crazy idea. He'll just say, don't be daft, we can't do it. Um, and there was a young publicity girl in the room with us, a publicist who was about 28, 29, and she sat back in her seat and she went, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the guy who was recording the podcast, who was still listening to us, even though he was in the next room and we thought we'd finished, he said in my ear, palimpsest. That was the clincher. That was the clincher. And then Simon kind of shrugged in his, in his lovely way and said, well, I'll, I'll find out. And actually, you say it might be difficult. Actually, it was really, really simple. He got back it's to me in three simple. days' time yeah. and said, it's no, it's really simple. easy. All we do is, is, you know, stop the print and run halfway it's through. numbers and it's... Just change, yeah. change, the, change the, the, the file and you just yeah. bring out... The, it's really, really, really simple. And then there was a the question of why nobody's ever tried to do it before and I, they really hadn't. So, but we did that, that. So it came from structure in the first place. My book. It came from his, and then the one thing that's amazing that, that that was the f I hadn't expected that that's what you'd say that that sort of actual play. No, it was. I was. Thing. I was stuck with a structure, thinking how yeah, will I work with structure? You know, which led me a merry dance for you know several months while I wrote something I you know shouldn't really have been writing. But as, yeah. as we said before we came on, nothing's wasted. You know? At a certain point, you must have started. Can you not hear me? And you're in the front row. No, we're really in trouble. How's how's that? That better? Okay. Did you did you did you miss all that at the back? No. Okay. Good. 
to me. I think you have to do it all again, okay? <laughs> Ali, I think you, you must then have written incredibly fast because it's you it's saw it's the picture, yeah. Francesco Del Costa's picture in the magazine in April 2013, as far as I know. It's true. And the book was published published a year later. Well, I had a tax I, bill. I had to... <laughs> No, there are, there are things which produce art out of us. Which... There, there, are actual, there are actual drivers for stuff. And I did, I did, I had to, I mean, that's why it was so galling that the first six months I spent with that book, you know, was, was not, you know, was, was kind of down a side road. However, those side roads are, you know, we need them. They're, they're never a waste, never side roads, really. You know. Why do you think there's not more um, structural improvisation, whatever you call it? Why, why do you think? I think, I, I, I mean,. <sighs> Why do you think linearity is such a sort of... I think people love linearity. I think we love linearity. We love continuity. Mm. I think, particularly with the novel, it's why people say they prefer the novel to the short story as a form, because the novel reassures you that life doesn't end. Actually, it's a question of mortality, where the short story, you know, kind of really thunks you up against mortality. Starts, it's over. You know, that's it. It's about brevity. But actually, people do love linearity. They love... You know, they love to think there is a sequence and there will be a sequence and the sequence will continue. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, a deeply rooted thing about the form, I think, that people want that. So, you know, messing with it was taking a risk, actually. Because I, I don't, I mean, I don't know much about how, how people structure things, but um, I, I do know a bit about B.S. Johnson, you know, and, and sort yeah. of the idea of a shuffle book or the idea of writing a narrative from different points, you know. Yeah. But, of course, he, that didn't... That was just him. Nobody else seemed to be doing it. Or, and or even B.S. Johnson couldn't uh, put together a book that didn't have couldn't a fixed beginning yeah. and a fixed end. You know, you yeah. can shuffle that book, but it has to have its beginning and end. So, but, but, I mean, it, it just—I suppose—I suppose it's something to do with what's you know closest to the publisher's heart, which is making as much money out of something which will simply do the job oh, as possible. Oh, that? I don't know. I don't know because because the, yeah. the novel itself is such a. It's such a versatile such form, and I feel form, like we haven't yeah. even begun to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Marion, can I ask you about how, how your book uh, came into being? Because you write this curious thing at the very beginning. You say, a book about the future must be written in advance. Later, I won't have the energy to speak, so I'll do it now. Which suggests that you were writing your book while Tom was ill. But as one reads mm. the book, the level of exhaustion that you were experiencing while he was ill makes one think you can't have you can't have written it then how did it happen well in a way in a way i was and i wasn't i mean i i started putting down words i wouldn't even say they were kind of very structured but they were can everyone can everyone hear me is that okay yeah i started putting down sort of thoughts expressed in words probably in about late 2009 um, and it was kind of more just a way of seeing things, more, more a way of trying to make a sort of lens through which I could look at the absolutely catastrophic stuff that was happening to us. Um, and it was very... There was no notion beyond that at all. It was like... It was almost like... There were these tiny nuggets of things. It was almost like, almost like spitting or something. It was like this and this and this and this. And they were just word docs. They were separate word docs. Um, and I would do them late at night. I mean, the sort of... The day had so much pressure on it um, that, in a way, to carve out little moments where I could... Where all I was doing was just being myself and being able to think. 
was actually a really important tiny fragment. So were you writing for yourself without an idea of an audience? Absolutely, yes. No, no idea of putting it into no. a book that would go out no. into the world? It was, no. it was a kind of way of making... It was a way of looking. It was a way of articulating. We were given constantly these things to see and experience and do that were totally outrageous and totally, you know, shocking in all sorts of ways and, and also totally amazing in other ways, you know. Um, so it was a way of just kind of sticking them somehow physically. Um, and, I mean, you know, this was against the background, of course, Tom was a writer and he was writing with a very different head on him, you know, but he was writing for a public, he kept, he kept working astonishingly till late September 2010, which is absolutely incredible, really. Um, and, and, but I just wanted to kind of, I don't know, the, the, it, was, it was more a way of me processing things. It was, it was going away kind of against annihilation, really, it was just as a way of keeping going. And you, you then had to come back to these documents afterwards and... Um, I kind of... The, the, you know, the, the bits of writing kept going. It was just like they were just there. You stick them on a computer. Here they are. There's hundreds of them, whatever. It wasn't like I kind of needed to do anything with them. You know, Did you then shape them into a book, or they were pretty much Much there. later. Much later, yeah. Uh, all this, there was a kind of very long period where this stuff was just going on, and then at a certain point, much later, this is sort of after Tom had died, um, and I was... Because I was involved in the editing process for, for the books which came out, of his subsequently. So I was, I was at that point after he died involved in writing, you know, as in working on writing. And at a certain point, and I can't quite, I can't probably tell you when it was, but um, I understood that this stuff, this material, was a work. And from that point on, I knew what to do with that work. And that then I mean? dictated the structure, which is that you have, you know, almost like these tiny essays. Well, this, of, the, yeah. these were from original word docs. And yeah. I kind of, mentally, I thought, of the, I thought about them as chains of text. And sort of, I, and I realised I was kind of carrying them around in my head and then sort of slightly joining them up hmm. in my head. And then I'd go back and physically think, well, we'll join them up, you know. And it was almost like a kind of, in a funny way, it was almost like manual labour. It was like sort of, here's something to do, you know, here's something to do. Which didn't have any, which was just kind of mine and it didn't have nothing else impinging on it, no none of the total stuff around, you yep. know. It was kind of a very... It was quite a private space, really, mm. Um, mm. which is, is kind of important, I think. So it was out of that, um, I don't know, quite physical thing that it, that it sort of grew, I guess. Mm. But, I, you know, I, I, I can't... Like I say, I don't know quite what the chronology was. Um, but there was, I mean... There was a bunch of material. I showed Tom some of it at a certain point. So I, at that point, I clearly thought, here is some material which people can look at. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Here. Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah. It's not like formed or anything. But you can... Here it is. Yeah. Yeah. What's astonishing about your book, and also about how to be both, is that you both have a way of writing about grief sorrow, loss, that doesn't drag the reader down. In fact, they're both rather up, uplifting books, in a way. Um, and, Ali, you write about grief quite... I mean, it's not just in this novel, but in Artful as well. Um, why do you keep coming back to it? And are you writing from experience or imagination? I mean, I, you know, um, I, I, think, I think... When I said that, I thought that art and mortality are linked... And I think they are, they are linked. I think art is one of our ways of 
understanding, um, coming to terms with, uh, surviving, um, and just simply being able to put through that lens that Mariam was talking about uh, of what's happening uh, to look at the ways that... I mean, I haven't had great griefs. I have had great... I mean, we, you know, I've had parents who died. I mean, it's not like I've, you know... Um, I've not, it's not like I was in a, a bus full of people who went over a cliff and I managed to hold on and they all died. I mean, nothing spectacular, just the normal run-of-the-mill everyday griefs, which seem to me to be central to life. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely. There. I mean, it's definitely there in what I write. It's the, and I think of Hotel World, you know, or, um, which is a novel I wrote a long time ago. And there, it starts with the voice of the gone. I, you know, partly I know that's something to do with that um, relationship of form to grief, um, and partly I know it's to do with the fact that I'm Scots. Um, I'm from Scotland, and that there's always been a kind of uh, an allowance of voices which don't get heard. Uh, you know, kind of at the back of my knowledge of what it means to, to you know, to come from a place and to and to have read its literature, and the voices that I mean, those voices are the voices that I think you, you really have to pay attention to in a way. The voices which are undercurrent or overcurrent, even which you know, which aren't which aren't in the current mm. of the everyday. They're the ones which if you, there's a, there's a fantastic uh, um, novel by uh, Nabokov called Transparent Things, which begins, "Hey, person." And then goes, oh, can't hear me, you know, <laughs> which is just is exactly it. This is a spirit talking absolutely through the book, pushing through the book, this, the spirit of both, you know, a gone person and the art. And there's the, as far as I'm concerned, that in a way is the, is the calling card of, of almost everything written. Um, uh, and, but it's just, you know, the, the thing about, if I think about um, looking at my books or these, those books as being about grief, it's, they're not really, they're about energy. They're about the thing which passes us through grief and life and holds those things together. They're about, they're about what Blake calls eternal delight, the eternal delight of energy, which is how, what life is, really. It's the, and that includes death. It can't not include death. Um, why would we pretend it doesn't? I remember... We will, I know we're going to talk about this. Um, we can't. We can't not. Um, I remember listening to the radio one one day in that radio four way that you switch it on and catch the end of something, and I caught the end of an old um, interview with a um, an Archbishop of Canterbury, and I can't remember which one, or didn't find out which one long, long time ago. In a very a kind of RP pronouncing um, interviewer said to him, "So, what is the point of teaching these boys that you teach at this school?" who come in at 12, what do you teach them? And this uh, archbishop said, well, we teach them how to die. <laughs> and it was such an anomaly in the middle of the day, in the Radio 4 day, and of course it's absolutely right. It's absolutely, of course, it, of course that's what, you know, uh, uh, what we ought to teach all our kids and all ourselves. And what we, you know, and so the, 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 kind of at, at the back of my head, there's always that. Um, and I, I suppose I'm thinking now as well about all the... the the 1914 to 1918 stuff about the First World War, and I've, I've just been rereading some Freud um, by chance, um, an essay of his which is about reflections, timely reflections on war and death, he, he calls it, and um, at the end of which he refigures, uh, reconfigures uh, the, the old form, the old cliche, the old saying, if you want to prepare for peace, then prepare for war. And he refigures it to, if you want to live, then know how to die. You know, and there is that. There is the, the connection between the vibrancy of life um, and the going of us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These oppositional things are totally stuck together, with yeah. not even a paper between them, really. And I think that's true, that, that kind of, the idea about kind of 
thinking about or having, I don't know, just having more of a kind of acceptance about our own finitude. Do you know what I mean? That the fact that we are creatures which begin and end, you know, that would really change quite a lot. It would, it would be quite a sort of major shift, even mm. though it might be actually quite minor in some regards. You know what I mean? The actual sort of ramifications of it would be rather, rather gigantic in a way. Because there's a striking line at the, quite near the beginning of the iceberg where you write, when you hear Tom's diagnosis, and you yeah. write, we are mortal. You might say you know that, but you don't. Yeah. It is an extraordinary thing. We are all... It's the one thing we all have in common. We're all... We're all going to die. Yeah. But we're, we're very, very bad at facing up to it. And you, in both your books, you have um, professional people uh, in, in How to Be Both. It's the school counsellor, Mrs. Rock, and you have mm. this um, NHS mm. counsellor who are supposed as their, you know, it's their job to help people through these things. And they are banal. They have no <laughs> idea how to do it. Oh, poor Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Rock. I, I like the character mm. of Mrs. Yeah, Rock. She's better than that. <laughs> she is, I, I, her sort of static... Her, her kind of staticness of sitting there. I thought, what a job. I know, you know. I know, I, I and know, then this, this girl going around this at her. So that's rather amazing. But also, I really wanted to punch the, the therapist in your book. I just was like, come on, get to grips, help, help a bit. You know. But it's kind but, of so, I, I don't know, in a way, I mean, on the one hand, it was sort of one mad incident among many, but um, it did seem odd that, that you know, because there's, there's a long description about the walk to the to the therapist's room, and the fact that by the time you get there, you absolutely want to top yourself because it's it's <laughs> yeah. so everything about that walk and everything about the, the figuration of it says, "Don't go here." It says you will receive no help here. You know we can re- we can read these signs. We're not yeah. we're not idiots. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then um, the business about the mis- this idea of sympathy. I mean, really. I, you know, like I said, I, I, I had lots of sympathy. Sympathy was coming at me from all directions. I was completely swamped in sympathy. But actually, strategy and real <clears throat> aid, you know, needed to be given. And in fact, the, the, the place where I got it is, and this is again indicative, is that um, at the second counselling service, which was very, um, very sort of pragmatic, and I still, I still go there when I need to. But actually, that counselling service per se, which used to be called um, Cancer Counselling Trust, folded, lack of funds. You know, it's tiny, it's minute. It did me such a service, yeah. and hence my family and hence other people. Such a huge service. And yet, you know, the, 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 and again, I mentioned this in the book, they, they all spent their time chasing money and chasing funds, tiny mm. pockets of money, tiny mm-hmm. pockets of funds, to do this thing which actually means everything. how to help people yeah, deal with everything. this very kind of cataclysmic, yet in some regards extremely common uh, experience, you know. And the sort of, again, the, the, the strain and the drain on that just go on and on and on, yeah. unless that's actually, you know, that's actually in place. Mm. And again, this, this is all stuff I learned for the first time at this point. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I knew this stuff. It wasn't like I said, oh, yes, I'll go to this. You know, this was all stuff. And it was slightly haphazard that I, a friend recommended it. So it was all a kind of this hazard, things going by hazard, when really they should be much more, um, there should be much more clarity or much more sort of overt sense made of a situation which, uh, you know, is not unknown. No, it's not unknown. It's every day and we should be able to look after ourselves through it. We should be able to look after ourselves. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) 
Can, can we move on and talk a little bit about the workings of time, which are very important in, in both books? Um, Ali, you uh, once, I, I'm sure you're the only person in this room who's ever given an, a sermon in Manchester Cathedral. Unless Lionel Shriver and Stetler right? are here. <laughs> Stand up all the others who've ever done that. <laughs> and uh, in the course of giving that sermon, um, you say time is chronological, but life force is cyclic. Um, or cyclic, perhaps it's... Yes, no, cyclic, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And it seems to me that in How to Be Both, you're, although you've talked about how the form of the novel is, is linear, you're trying your very best to allow time to kind of burst its banks and be cyclic yes, and, and yes. layered. Okay. Um, the, um, the, book, the book came from uh, as, uh, uh, those things we were talking about earlier, but particularly from, as Maggie said, I saw a picture in a magazine. I knew I wanted to look at structure, of, uh, an aesthetic structure, but then I saw a picture in a magazine which actually <coughs> just was so beautiful that I wanted to go and see the original. And the original it was in um, uh, a palace in Ferrara, um, and it was, this picture was a picture of a man standing dressed in rags, a man with nothing, a man whose clothes are almost gone. His, his knees and his elbows are coming out through his clothes. He's clearly a worker. He's clearly you know, close to ruin, and yet he is the most powerful thing that I have seen for a long time. And he's, he's tied around his, his um, waist as a, as, a, as a rope instead of a belt, and he's holding the rope like this, rather dilettante, and at the same time as if to say, I am completely free. But if you want to take my rope, we can go somewhere, we can do something. And I went, I went to Ferrara, I went to see this room uh, called the Room of the Months in the Palazzo Schifanoia, which uh, was painted in the 1460s, we think, probably 14, late 1460s up to 1470, and um, which only exists at all um, because a, after the, the Duke who... Uh, commissioned this room of the months which shows him in the whole year his whole year around the bottom eight, a kind of level of this room there's the, these pictures of this very gracious man who's hunting and giving out gifts to his people and then above that you've got for each month of the year an entrance of one of the mythical gods um, and then in the middle of these you've got this blue band with these people standing just figures standing so you've got earth heaven the blue band with these constellations in it and then these gods at the top so this room is full of all these figures it's full of all this colour um, a, after the man who um, commissioned it uh, was, you know, died and went, and the, his his family it lost power, um, the room got covered over by whitewash and became a, a barn, and then became a tobacco store, and then, you know, 400 years later, some of that whitewash fell off the wall, and and the people who were working there saw these faces peeking out and thought, oh, great, you know, a, a, a fresco, a new fresco for Ferrara, and they took the whitewash off, and this room is still there. Um, now we have it. It's the most and I, I just can't tell you what it's like to walk into that room. It is so beautiful. You walk into an empty room and it's full of life. You walk into a room that is so warm and lively and full of colour that time doesn't exist. And yet time really exists because you look at the wall and you can see all the things which are markers of time and you see things which are mysterious to you because time has passed and we've no idea what they mean. And yet time just doesn't exists the thing that happens in that room is about life it's not about time it's about life the man who uh, you know, commissioned these pictures of his life as we go around the walls isn't what happens when you go into that room you get a sense just of a kind of vibrancy of life and that I think was the, the key at the back of this book which of course uh, it just ended up being about um, both life and death because you know the artist who did well the, the artist who did those pictures obviously died 500 years ago and there that artist is 
you know, on, you know, on, on those walls. And this is just, mm. just, you can't get away from it. You are faced with the excitingness and the beauty of life mm. via art. But also there seems to be, as I understood, there seems to be lots of representations of time going on in the layers, like this is yep. kind of quotidian time, like this is the stuff we're doing at the moment, and there's all these gods who presumably everything they do takes hundred year. years or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of, yeah. But it's like a sort of lots of layers over each it's other. It's about time, and it's really not about time. Mm. And that's what's brilliant about it, is you know it's the months of the year, you can see March, April, May, you can see the harvest, you can mm. see the things happen, and halfway around the room, those pictures disappear because they were painted seco rather than fresco. So you get around to September and they're gone. Mm. The, the rest of the room is faded. Tiny, you can catch a leg or the, the side of a horse or the, the kind of buttress of a building. Nothing else because they weren't frescoed. Mm. So again, form has something to do with that yeah, lasting... Yeah, yeah. Thing, the thing which did and still is that vibrant today. Mm. You know. So I left with all those conundrums and, and the, the various conundrums that come from this, this, the story of the, the artists themselves who put this brim together. It was a kind of gift. I couldn't not write it, really. Mm. Have you ever done that before, though? Gone on a journey as a result of seeing a picture in a no, magazine? No, never, never that, definitely. <laughs> no, I know that was, you know, yeah, that's quite you know, interesting. Yeah. I mean, never, that, never that decidedly. There was no question... I needed to, and also, do you know what? I, I looked it up on the net after I'd seen the picture. I typed it in, and it said Palazzo Schifanoia closed because of earthquake. And then I thought, I I don't know even if this picture still exists. What if I've just seen this photograph in the magazine and this picture isn't there anymore? It's lucky for us, and so many things have gone, and so many things do go. But lucky for us, it's one of the things that is still there. There's a big crack in the building, but the the hall of the months is still there. The room of the months. Yeah. Marion, can I ask you a bit about time in your book? You talk about how um, after Tom's diagnosis you began to live in a what you call a present continuous. And uh, then the very moving final pages on uh, Tom's deathbed, you write, time is refreshing itself, that's all. It is simple. Duration is a rope that drags and keeps us. Time is the fundament we have never left. So powerful is its agency and pull. Mm. Um, it was almost like on on hearing the diagnosis. I mean, we obviously we were completely shocked, um, but it was almost like from that moment, everything you, your whole experience of of being alive and things happening in your life and the normal stuff happening, just was changed. You know, it just was like, and it was almost like, so it was almost like the experience of time was changed, but also my, the visual field, what you felt about the stuff you saw was changed. Mm. And it was quite hard to sort of articulate how that happened. And in a way, part of the book is an attempt to articulate what that was, because obviously I'm very, I, I, you know, looking is my living in a way, or, or, or thinking about what I see, or being able to do something with what I see. <coughs> so like, it, having a sort of, and, in a, and, and, and another bit I try and des- I describe it, it's almost like, you know, the, as having, being in the house which you know and then the house has ever so slightly shifted so the light falls differently in the house. So it wasn't like this kind of big mega thing. It was just like things are different. They feel different. The experience of them is different. My relationships are all different, you know, and it's almost like you have to kind of get used to that difference. And in a way, that's, that is a kind of real motor which goes through the thing. And there was a sort of... And it's written in the present tense, mm-hmm. and it's written in the first person. <clears throat> and it's very particularly done because I suppose what I wanted to, what I wanted to do was to, once I, 
I mean, that was how the, the, the little nuggets of stuff were written, because this was a kind of very almost private relationship between words and, and how you put them down. But thinking about um, how that would work for other people, I, I suppose I wanted to bring people very, very close to the texture of what it felt like to have, have that different experience of time mm. and to have that different sort of understanding of, oh, this is the now, yeah. that was before, and then this is... I mean, you get that just from... I mean, the, 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 the engine, the process of the book takes you through something which allows you to understand time so differently that it's a, a complete liberation. It's, it's wonderful. You, you start this book and you're saying they've been hit by the news. You know, there is no time for anything to be saved. There's no time for anything to sink in. There is yeah. no time. Yeah. And we get to the end of the book and you say, not just that beautiful thing about time that you read, Maggie, but we are way outside, yeah. outside of culture, place, gender. Yeah. I do not know where we are, but I feel very sure of myself here. Well, and then yeah. it says time is refreshing itself. That's all it is. Simple. Mm. And it's like a kind of, it's like a bit, it's like, the, the, it's like a, the, the best gift ever, you know, to, to know that the process in a way produces this understanding, which is so yeah. fulfilling. It is, it is extraordinary. Oh. Don't go away anyone this evening without buying a copy of the book if you haven't already <laughs> got it. Marion, perhaps it's, this is a good moment for you to read. Yes, I will. Um, what did I say I was going to read? I might go to the left. I wonder if I can... Can my voice carry without speaking to a microphone? Can you hear me? Yeah? Because I might stand up. I think it's time to stand up. Um, I'm going to read two... <coughs> I'm going to read two small chunks from the book. Um, as I said, it's written... Basically, it's um, written in numbered sections. It's written in three sections with a very short coda, a fourth section... And then each section is divided into these numbered subsections, which vary between about 300 words and 3,000 words. I'm going to read two from the middle of the book. Um, So this is from 2.1. Spring. There is going to be destruction. The obliteration of a person, his intellect, his experience, and his agency. I am to watch it. This is my part. There is no deserving or undeserving. There is no better and no worse. Cold has pained the ground for months. Now the garden is bursting and splitting. From the window each morning, I mark the naked clay seeding to green. I am against lyricism, against the spring, against all growth, against all fantasies, against all nature. Blast growth in all things that grow. Mm. It is irrelevant, stupid, a waste. As nature is indifferent to me, so am I to it. As the air outside thickens and the warmth encourages the earth to release its smell, something is starting to go wrong. It is now March. I say it is March the 11th. In one week, Tom will have another scan. This is the one to fear. Today, as he stands mid-morning by the kettle, chatting and making tea, his language trips into rhythmically correct nonsense. It is ludic, quickly recoverable, but it does not sit either with fits or with his usual verbal slippages, and we note the difference in its texture immediately. It is as if language problems are self-seeding and taking root elsewhere. The primary confusions up till now have been in epileptic shocks of greater or lesser intensity. Some lie under the radar, barely registering. Others are brash. He is silenced and cannot frame a sentence with meaning. When this happens... The thought that no sense will ever be made again is visual, like a solid mass, as real as an object is real, a tin or a plate or a pen. For him it is different. 
Fear is not the issue. Even in the thick of it, he's always trying to work out what is going on, to test himself. He's his only best monitor. There have not been so many fits, that outside them complexity is multiplying, and thousands of lesser confusions also occur. Words slip out, switches are stumbled over, and substitutions made. Like exotic fauna, the varieties of language proliferate. The scan results are as expected. After nine months of post-chemostasis, it is springtime. The tumour is growing again. Spring. Magnolia sulangiana opens its bells and we are well. Normality is gifted in the form of steroids, two milligrams daily. And immediately he tightens his grip on language and on the connection of meaning to word. He feels much stronger, stimulated. He can do simple tasks without exhaustion, pick up air and carry them. How we adore this high false peak. It lasts quite a short time, but time is a material stream, and we never know how long it will last till we are taken in by it. Of course we are. We are as ever in the moment, and we are well, so we are forever well. We are not sanguine, but we've been here before. We are doing our work, and we know what the work is. We know we are good at it. We splash about like birds in a bird bath. I'm going to read another short section, which is uh, from the middle again, which is called 2.7. When the resurrection comes to Hearn Hill, it will not be as imagined by Stanley Spencer. No. It will be the resurrection as painted by Luca Signorelli in 1500 on the wall of the cathedral at Orvieto, where the immaculate dead lift themselves by their own force, pulling their pristine bodies miraculously out of the smooth grey piazza. The local council have newly paved the area, taming the junction and doing away with the road to make it continuous with the pavement. They have cleared the way for small armies of cafe tables to do everlasting battle. Today I hear the beat of death in all things. I hear it in Brixton, in Stockwell, in Hearn Hill, in the streets around the park and off the high street. It does the thing it has always done, acts as counter and beta and engine, driving blood around my body and to my eyes, so that I can see the world before me and all the people in the world afresh. It is in my ears, pumping the blood around the bodies of all the separate people as they move into view, going forwards and backwards, and always separately to the shops and home, and out again to pick up a paper, milk, something they've forgotten and back again to be with their families at the final hour. 26, 27, 28, 29. All is mundane and all is exalted. 81, 82, 83, 84. When I look at Ev, only he eludes this death song. I know why. It is because I cannot see him clearly in the way I cannot see the small of my own back. It is my central pivot but I never get to look at it straight on. Once, Ev was in there himself, pressing against the curve of my spine, fossicking around the vertebrae as he flexed and spun and readied himself in his egg of fluid. Now, he was thinking, now it is near. Okay, <clears throat> I won't. Um, I won't stand up in case you can't hear me. Um, 
I'll stay close to the mic. It is last May, in Italy. George and her mother and Henry are sitting after supper at a table outside a restaurant under some arches near the castle. Her mother has been going on and on to them, well, to George, because Henry's on a computer game, about fresco structure, about how when some frescoes in a different Italian city were damaged in the 1960s in bad flooding and the authorities and restorers removed them to mend them as best they could, they found underneath them the underdrawing their artists had made for them and sometimes the underdrawings were significantly different from their surfaces, which is something they'd never have discovered if there hadn't been the damage in the first place. George is only half listening because the game Henry is looking at on the iPad is called Injustice and George thinks Henry is far too young for it. What game is it? Her mother says. It's the one where all the cartoon superheroes have turned evil, George says. It's really violent. Henry, her mother says. She takes an earphone out of one of Henry's ears. What? Henry says. Find something less violent to do on there, his mother says. Okay, Henry says, if I must, you must, his mother says. Henry puts the earphone back in and clicks off the game. He clicks on a download of Horrible Histories instead. Pretty soon he is giggling to himself. Not long after that, he falls asleep at the table with his head on the iPad. But which came first, her mother says, the chicken or the egg, the picture underneath or the picture on the surface? The picture below came first, George says, because it was done first. But the first thing we see, her mother said, and most times the only thing we see is the one on the surface. So does that mean it comes first after all? And does that mean the other picture, if we don't know about it, may as well not exist? George sighs heavily. Her mother points across the way to the castle wall. A bus goes past. Its whole back is an advert for something in which there's a Madonna and child picture as if from the past, except the mother is showing the baby Jesus how to look up something on an iPad. We're sitting here having our supper, her mother is saying, and looking at everything that's around us, and over there, right there in front of us, if this was a night 70 years ago... Yeah, but it isn't, George says. It's now. We'd be sitting here watching people being lined up and shot against that wall, along from where those seats for the cafe bar are. Ah, God, George says. Mum, how do you even know that? Would it be better or worse or truer or falser if I didn't? Her mother says... George scowls. History is horrible. It is a mound of bodies pressing down into the ground below cities and towns and the unending wars and the famines and the diseases and all the people starved or done away with or rounded up and shot or tortured and left to die or put up against the walls near castles or stood in front of ditches and shot into them. George is appalled by history, its only redeeming feature being that it tends to be well and truly over. And which comes first, her unbearable mother is saying, what we see or how we see. Yeah, but that thing happening with the shooting, it was eons ago, George says. Only 20 years before me and here I am sitting here right now, her mother says. Ancient history, George says. That's me, her mother says, and yet here I am, still happening. But it isn't, George says, because that was then, this is now, that's what time is. Do things just go away? Her mother says, do things that happen just not exist or stop existing because we can't see them happening in front of us? So, Ali, do things just go away? Do things that happen not exist or stop existing just because we can't see them happening in front of us? I, I have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. don't, don't give it away, okay? Don't give it away. 
They'll never buy it otherwise. Of course they don't. Of course they don't. Of course, of course, a we. In fact, I know this. There's, there's a kind of. the very act of this book was about redemption. It was about redemption of those pictures in the, in the first place, which had disappeared. Um, it was about redemption of a story of a human being about whom hardly anything is known, which allows the imagination to make all sorts of things of a life. Um, it was about the, what should we say, there's a, there's, a, there's a quote from Hannah Arendt, which I use kind of lovingly at the front of the book, which is, which is about um, how... I'm going to read it to you. That'll answer the question. Although the living is subject to the ruin of the time... The process of decay is at the same time a process of crystallisation, that in the depth of the sea into which sinks and is dissolved what once was alive, some things suffer a sea change and survive in new crystallised forms and shapes that remain immune to the elements, as though they waited only for the pearl diver who one day will come down to them and bring them up into the world of the living. I mean, that to me is the... The, 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 I mean that, that word redemption the bringing back of something the redeeming of something I mean it, it's not surprising we use it so religiously in, in, our, you know, in, our, in our rhetorics in our lives um, it is about the, the ways in which things have never really gone away as, as soon as we start to pay attention to the surfaces and the layers and the what should we say the well the the stratification which makes us human. Well, that is, I think one of the... Uh, is it George's mother says in your book, nothing is not connected? Yeah, nothing's not connected. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a maddening thing, but it's true. I mean, all sorts of things connect that we might not want to connect, but at the same time, um, we, make, we make our connections, as it were, um, with the grace of the random, often. And, those, and the, that, that gifts us... I mean, what, what, I, what I particularly love and I'm excited by in, in both Marion, Marion's book and Tom Lubbock's book, the, 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 um, the, the, the twin book, as it were, to your own book, is the ways in which they understand about language and the connections of meanings to words, and yet the ways in which those things just break apart. And then so we, we start again and we start to make meaning in a different way. Mm. We, you know, we don't stop meaning and we, we, we go out of our way to try and find another language when mm. language itself won't deliver mm. for us. And mm. our, our kind of strategies, you know, because at certain points in the book we were trying to come up with strategies against language loss yeah, yeah. while knowing very clearly it was total failure. You know? And there was a kind of, there's a kind of comedy in that also. You know, the business about this means this, or if I can't say this to you, I can do this. Yogurt means T-shirt. Yogurt means T-shirt, you know, and, yes. and those kind of things. Yes. And, um, but I suppose one of the things is, and I use the word in the book, this is the business about plasticity, about the brain being very plastic and changeable and adaptable and how all this stuff was going on all the time, you know, and certainly with Tom's illness, obviously it was, it was, it was sort of biting very deep, it was going very hard, but at the same time there was a kind of, I mean, partly because of the character he was, he was always kind of working at it, he was always playing at it and, and thinking, what can I do now? I mean, there's a, a really brilliant line in, in um, Until Further Notice I'm Alive, which is, of course I'm helpless, so what do I do with helplessness? <laughs> which is like a kind of, it's a joke, but actually it's a very, it's a very important thing to say as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. What can I do with this situation? Um, and... And even in, in the whole business, obviously things, things were being played out over time. And so we, and we never, you never got, had a chance to get used to anything, but you were just kind of in something. But we just found that you know, when, when the words became like when he had 40 words or 30 words or 20 words, yeah. 
it, it was it was we could still communicate you know yeah. and and the things that were needed <coughs> in a very kind of local way because obviously I, I being closest to him could understand the most you know because I had in a sense of all time in the world to understand you know I, that was what that was all I wanted what to do that was all yeah. that was my my job was so to speak you know um so it was kind of, it was okay. No. There's this astonishing sentence, almost at the very end of Tom's book, so I imagine it must have been one of the very last things he yeah. wrote, where he says, uh, first of all, it was scary, now it's all right. Mm. It is still, even now, interesting. It was still interesting. Astonishing. It was still interesting. And it yes. chimed with a sentence, for me, from, from How to Be Both, uh, in which Annie writes... Um, in hell there is no mystery, because in mystery there is always hope. In both things there's this thing of if you can remain involved and questioning, huh. mm. then everything isn't lost. Oh, that's beautiful. That's made me think something I haven't thought in, b- b- before. The um, Part of the genesis, I think, of how to be both comes from a friend of mine who died in her mid-40s. She was the, a walking library. She was a wonderful... A uh, girl I met when I was at university in Cambridge and she was from Belfast and I was from Scotland and we immediately got on and she just was just a, a huge... I mean, she just would move through your life with a kind of force of art. I mean, she you know, she, she would come in and drop a Rose, a Rose Macaulay book on and say, have a read of that, it's really good. You know, and she just was... She, and it, we, had, we hardly knew each other, but we knew each other, if you see what I mean, in that way that you were with a friend, you know a friend through their lives, but you don't see them much, but you know your friends. And then she had died, and she was... The thing I know about her is that if I had said to her, have you ever heard of this place in Ferrara, the Palazzo Schifanoi, she'd have gone, oh, yes, the Palazzo Schifanoi. She would have known because she was so interested. It was the interest in her that was the life in her. And that something about the curiosity and the playfulness mm. and the mm. interestedness, the always being curious, which is the life... Which is the life. You which know, is the, the life. The, you know, the point where language becomes nonsense and is funny because we're losing it. We can still play... And we can still enjoy, yeah. and we can still yeah. kind of use the, I mean, use the comedic elements of yeah. the words. I mean, there's, there was a lot of sort of, you know, for Tom, it was it was clearly on a global level a total disaster, but on a, a level where you made these word slips, yeah. and the f- strangest things would come out. Mm. You know, this is about logs and otters treading on otters, you know? <laughs> and and you couldn't ever go back to to find where that sense was. But at the same time, it was it was do this this the word now is otter. Yeah. We use otter, you know. We kind of work with otter, so to yeah. speak. Um, and this beautiful line that, he, that he, he he says, "We must become lighter beings. We must become mm-hmm. lighter beings." This is just I think a, I'm, I, I I want to kind of have that written on my heart. We must become lighter beings. <laughs> yeah? mm. I can do you a t-shirt. Mm. Okay. A t-shirt. <laughs> would you do me a t-shirt? I could do a t-shirt. She says I had to, I had to do a t-shirt this morning. I had to do a t-shirt this morning because. Yeah. Uh, Late last night, um, my, my boy, just who's going to bed, said, tomorrow morning we have to go to school dressed as a number. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, that is so not what I want to hear, because I was very busy last night. But, um, so this morning, <laughs> we did a T-shirt. And uh, the number was 99. And it looked very good, so I could do a T-shirt. In fact, he could do a T-shirt. <laughs> Better still. There you go. Thank you. I think very soon we ought to open up to um, questions from the audience, because I'm sure you've got lots. But... Can we just um, can mm. I just finish by asking you about your um, feelings when when your books go out and and meet their audiences and you begin to get this huge kind of public um, reaction? I mean, neither of you it seems to me are people who kind of particularly seek the limelight. Um, Ali 
uh, was interviewed recently by a Sri Lankan newspaper and asked, what is a distinctive habit of yours? And she answered, cultivating privacy in a world now <laughs> unused to it. And um, Marion, early on in your book, you talk about sending out that first email to friends to say what yeah. was going on and then feeling absolutely kind of, as you put it, isolated and illuminated by the sort of response well, of knowledge. the whole world yeah. knowing... Yeah. What, what what's it like? I mean, you both put these books out. They've had this vast success. You must be getting millions of letters. And what's what's that like? It's it's a public thing and it's a private thing. It's been I've I've found it amazing. Really, it's. I mean, I suppose I didn't really think. I mean, I haven't written a book before. I didn't think what would happen. I'd, and the thing which, when I got the first email from someone I didn't know, I was I thought oh. Yes, some, that can happen. You know, mm. someone you don't know can be in touch with you as a result of a thing you've made in the world. It just feels fan- I, it's a, in a way a fantastic honour. It just Great. is a sort of. I, I'm, it's it's very generative. It's very. I don't know where it's going, but it's it's sort of it generates stuff. I think that's mm. very important. Well, my, my book is not from the same coach. We say bone life, bone marrow that Marion's has had to come from. It's from a different, a different marrow in a way. But it's a, re- it's a relief, really, that it works, uh, or that it seems to work, and that it seems to work both ways round. Um, good. I mean, you kind of you, you hope they work. You hope that once they're finished that you know, you're letting them go and that's all right and they'll, they'll do their job. The, I, I know it must be doing its job because, um, because occasionally I see people come towards me, their eyes are very bright um, <laughs> with having read it. And actually, I think that's the sign. That's the sign you know that... Something has, and there's another. I'm going to quote Tom Lubbock oh, again. Oh, please, please, I'm going please. to say, I'm going to say this beautiful piece from from he from the he's quoting Keats in the letter. The, I go among the fields and catch a glimpse of a stoat or a field mouse peeping out of the withered grass. The creature hath a purpose, and its eyes are bright with it. And that that oh, seems wonderful. to me to be, if, yeah. you know, if we can, if if we can keep our eyes bright, we're doing all right. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, do we have a microphone? Is there a roving mic, or are people just going to stand up and ask? Oh, there is a there is a microphone. So, um, has, are there are there questions from the floor? I'm sure there are. There's one. Yes, there's two. Two. Up in that. So. Um, I have a question for Ali, um, because the covers of your books seem very deliberate. Um, I have there but four, though, with the David Hockney sketch, uh, and um, the cover for How to Be Both, both front and back, seems very deliberate, too. It also, it almost seems like an extension of the novel, because it seems so deliberate. So I'm wondering about um, your involvement in that process. Yeah, I fight quite hard for the covers of my novels, at least in the UK. There's nothing I can do about it elsewhere, really, um, except say, no, I really don't like that, which, which they just ignore. Um, <laughs> but, in, but in the UK, I'm lucky in that the publisher I've got puts up with a lot and is very patient with me. Um, I, I want to... I want, I've always wanted to talk about the places where all the arts meet. You know, books are not just made by books, they're made by all the arts, and all the arts are made by all the arts. You know, they, all the arts are all connected. Um, so for, 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 for this one, um, um, well, for, well for, for there but for there, we had to fight quite hard to find a, an image which, um, which wasn't, you know, there, there were a lot of kind of sentimental images of children with seagulls and things sent to me, which, you know, the other thing publishers like to do, they like to put a, a face on the front, but the face has to be turning away, so it's not 
you know, contra- you know, it doesn't, it doesn't confront, confront you. It's not confrontational, and or the back of a head. <laughs> Is the other thing that, that you know, or a body that looks dead but is alive. That's the other thing that you know. Wow, that's so, so limited. I know it's appalling, really. And, the, and also, you know, um, I, I get away with a lot, really, by not having pink covers. But um, the um, as I was writing this book, I knew that there were a couple of pictures which were probably going to feature, and one of them is this picture on the front, uh, which is of two um, singers, two, two pop singers from the 1960s in France, Sylvie Vartan and Françoise Hardy, and I knew that the spirit of the 60s, the spirit of the point which was post-war <laughs> in history, which had then opened up into a kind of freedom for women and girls that was new and that was, it was that sauntering, it was that bright. I wanted simply to, to highlight it, and lucky for us, Sylvie Vartan said, oui, um, but Françoise Hardy said no, not until you tell me what the book's about and so we had to tell her what the book was about after which she said tell me a bit more and then we told her again and she said yes but the pu- publishers were delighted because it's two young women and they look, mm-hmm. you know, it's attractive for them. they were delighted by that but I insisted that on the back we have this image which is one of Francesca del Costa's images from the um, the Palazzo Schifanoia from the Room of the Months one of those images in the blue that I told you about um, it's a beautiful non-gendered picture, a picture between male and female of a kind of a, a, a figure holding a, a wand or a, or a, or a, a stick of some kind or, um, or a spear and a little ring. It's a game player figure. Um, and um, the correspondences when you look between the 1460s and the 1960s are immense. The kinds of correspondence between the clothes, the correspondence between stance, the correspondences between the figures and the faces, time is nothing. Time is nothing when you look at pictures and when you can put the pictures together and see how we have come through the, the, the years. So, yeah, both. Yeah. Um, both of your talks and um, the chair are very interesting, if I may say so. But my uh, question is about, you were saying all the arts were connected, and then both authors have talked about meaning versus words, and they're not necessarily the same thing. And it made me think of Magritte, and I just wondered if Magritte had any influence on either of you. No. I like Magritte. I like Magritte in 1948 when he had I hope I'm getting this right does anyone know about Magritte who knows about Magritte 1948 Vash period completely bonkers series of paintings Magritte's amazing in 48 to 49 um, he was going to have a show this didn't have any influence on the book but he was going to have a show in Paris and he was essentially hacked off that everyone had ignored him you know he was big in Belgium whatever um And he made this series of paintings which are very, very extraordinary and very unlike what you know Magritte looks like. They're incredibly liberated. They're incredibly bizarre. And um, there were 31 of them. And it was essentially a big sort of piss-off to the exhibition, really. Um, But they're sort of glorious. And they they display... Because he was a fantastic draftsman, Magritte. And they display a fluidity and a sort of openness, and the backgrounds are weird checks, and there's sort of hippopotamuses climbing up sort of uh, vertical surfaces. And he never did anything like it again. Um, And quite recently, I had reason to give this book called Vash Period Magritte to a student whose painting I 
like rather a lot. Um, so yeah, that's what I have to say about Magritte. <laughs> Um, I don't know that it's Magritte. I'm sure he must have had a huge influence on me simply from the ways that he uses words alongside images. Um, I'm very, I know I'm influenced by the female surrealists, um, but particularly by um, Leonora Carrington, um, who is a great writer and painter who is really underrated. She was, she's British and she died in Mexico not very long ago. I mean, the Tate should be full of her works. So at the moment, there's a Tate Liverpool exhibition just opening of some of her paintings. Go there to see them. She is an extraordinary figure, a, great, a really great writer if you can track down her novel, The Hearing Trumpet, and some of her short stories as well. But also... The photographer, Lee Miller, the photographer and writer, Lee Miller, who took pictures which were claimed as surrealist and people understood as surrealist, but which, you know, from 1930 to 1945, her pictures show you that surrealism is simply real and that the ways of seeing things, we, we, you know, we, we need, in a way, to be allowed to see things for what they are and differently, which is what Miller, who is a great, versatile connector of, you know, all the forms that she used across her life, um, which ended actually in, in surrealist cooking. She, in, in, the very, in the very last decade of her life, she made surrealist food. Um, she came back from a pretty rough alcoholism to, making, to winning lots of competitions for making pink and blue and orange fish dishes. And there, I mean, Miller is, I think Miller is a, re- I, mean, I, don't, I wouldn't have liked to eat them, but Miller is a really extraordinary uh, figure. I think, she, I think, you know, I owe, I owe Miller a lot, I think. Okay, yes, a question over there. Hi, this is for Ali Smith. Um, I was wondering if you came up with any other strategies for trying to kind of transcend or subvert the linearity of narrative, whether you experimented with other things before you settled on the two halves. Have have I come up with any other strategies for transcendence of of the linear linear narrative? Confetti. Confetti. The artist speaks. That's, that's confetti. the way forward, confetti. Confetti. Word on a bit of paper, chuck it out. In, something in little pieces. Yeah. Something in little pieces, which you then throw into the air. Absolutely. And take you, you can do that. You can do that. That is brilliant. I wonder yeah. if that... Let's see, is confetti possible in a novel? Is confetti... But it's probably more possible in the short story, um, because in the short story, we as readers allow other stuff to happen much more readily than we do in the novel. Confetti's a brilliant idea. Put but then the Dadaists kind of did that as well. They, you know, they like to... to construct sentences by simply pulling words out of a hat and that takes all linearity away. What's again interesting in, in both Marion and um, Tom's books where you're talking about um, the ways that words lose their meaning but syntax, Tom says, doesn't. Yeah. The, well, it's, it sticks for some reason. Grammar sticks to a certain point that where words don't. It was all, it was all I don't know, it, the sort of root, I mean, it, it's, it, it was all so tricky because the, the root of everything that was going on verbally was a physical thing, was a tumour, and the thing that was growing. Um, and in a way, the sort of the madness of the luck, because there was a lot of luck that certain things went and certain things didn't go, like his identity was never taken. You know, he always knew me, he, his, his, his personality was there. But that, the kind of, so it's a kind of real micro-fragment of reason why syntax should remain or something should be scrambled or something should not be scrambled yeah. you know and that, that's sort of a very peculiar I think that's a sort of it's kind of odd thing to think about how that has a it's got a physical root do you know what I mean and uh-huh. it's like it's something is located and therefore something else happens yeah. uh-huh. 
That's quite a sort of peculiar... There's a massive friction there, you know. Again, about the random connect, in a way. I mean, the astonishing thing, reading your book, (coughs) both your books, really, you you come away thinking the astonishing thing is that any of us can make these connections and speak rather than that somebody should stop being able to. We do fantastically well. It's, yeah. and, and, and hold our identity when we are confetti. Yeah. Any more questions? Yes. Hi. Um, this is a question for Ali, but uh, it could go to anyone in particular. Um, first of all, thank you for writing how to be both. It's great bibliotherapy, which means I liked it and it cheered me up. I'm glad. Um, but I really like the way you write about the mother-daughter relationship with, with George and her mother. And I just wondered if you had any influences in writing about that from other stories, perhaps. I'm really fed up there aren't better mothers in literature. I remember a, a, a friend of mine asking me about ten years ago, could I find some good quotes for mothers for a friend, for her for some kind of special thing she wanted to do for her mum, and it was actually quite hard (coughs) to find mothers who are not dead. Um, Of course, George's mother is dead, but the point is she's not dead. In fact, she's she's there, she's she's died, but there she is as present as ever. Um, I I think that's... I don't think I can answer that question any other way than that, really, that I was kind of filled with the force of... um, um, the importance of that inheritance uh, again from the 60s to now uh, again from those for across that 50 years which are my, you know, I, I know is intimately in my own generation when I started to write the Francesco half I did not know what was going to happen to Francesco's mother um, I knew that she was going to have to not be there but I knew that the I suppose what I really wanted to do with, with that, uh, and she disappears quite soon, but the, but the impetus of her is an aesthetic impetus rather than a natural impetus. And I think I want, what I wanted to do was suggest that we call it Mother Nature and we, we imagine that the old artificer is Father Art, but it's Mother Art too. We, you know, we, we can call them both, a, we can call it Father Nature and Mother Art if we like, that the genders in a way, are, I wanted to blow those open as to where those things come from in our lives. So the, the inheritance that Francesco picks up comes from a dual, uh, I don't know, um, attempt of, of both those parents to allow this child to exist as fully as possible. Make sense? Yeah. There's a, it, will, it will be for, you, for Marianne too, though, from talking about the, the, the notion of the, the, the child at the centre of both your book and mm. Tom's book, mm. uh, who is a real child in your real life. He's a real child who had to be... Penis is always at the ready to be pulled out of his belt and waved around like a plastic sword. That's so what beautiful. It was like. That's beautiful. That's, what, that's what it was really like. wonderful. Yeah. 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 You know, and sort of in spite of everything, here was this person, here was this human who could do this. Who and for him, like... I think you say somewhere that the past doesn't exist, it's just simply the present. Isn't it? You know, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, it's, it was a real, it was like having another node or something yeah. to look at and to, you know. Redemption legacy and continuance. Mm. Yeah. I think we've probably got time for two more questions. So one in the front here. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's a question for, for both of you. Um, I was thinking about the earlier question of do things stop existing just because we can't see them? And then I was thinking about a line from the writer Robert McFarlane 
what we can't name, we cannot in some sense see. And I was wondering about the, the role of language for both of you and the act of committing words to a page and what that meant. What we can't, what we can't name, we can't see. Yeah. I don't agree with I that. I don't agree with that either. I think that's completely wrong. You know, I'm much more interested <laughs> in what Wilde says, which is that when we name, we name something when we're finished with it, you know, um, that there's, there's much more of a, there's a, there's a kind of closing off in the naming of things. Yeah. Uh, uh, mystery is much more interesting. You, you, what is it? I don't know. I'm looking at it. I want to look at it. I think it's totally the opposite. Yeah. I've been passed a note to say that another event is about to start. And it's very important. <laughs> so I'm afraid, I'm afraid we're going to have to wind up. But, um, and I've, asked, I've been asked to let, if you could let the speakers uh, get out of the room first. Um, Marion and Ali will both sign books. But can we just say a very big thank you to both of them?